Welcome to the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider, the podcast where we pull back the curtain and speak to the brains behind sales and marketing activity that has delivered real results. Get inspired and get actionable ideas by hearing what they did and how they did it. Brought to you by me, Paul Spain, along with Gorilla Technology. Hey folks, greetings and welcome along to the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. I am your host, your new host for this show, uh, taking over from Ben Rose. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Uh, today we have the privilege of sitting down and hearing from Stephen Phillips. Now, Stephen is a multi-talented uh, individual who's well known within the New Zealand technology sector, both for his prowess as a salesperson and a marketer, um, plus also for his technical expertise uh, as an engineer and a cybersecurity leader. Uh, he's worked for more than half a dozen leading software vendors and sales and marketing roles, and in between has also worked in a variety of technical roles, uh, very recently as the Chief Information Security Officer at Westpac. Welcome along, Stephen. How are you? Thanks, Paul. Uh, feeling, feeling great to be here. Yeah. yeah, excellent. Well, let's just jump straight in. You've, you know, you had this, um, you know, focus as your career, you know, started out very much, uh, you know, down a, a technical path, um, working at the the forerunner to Spark, the forerunner to Telecom um, at NZ Post. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, those early days and then, you know, how you navigated from, uh, you know, technical and found yourself, uh, you know, doing uh, doing sales and, and marketing. Yeah, well, uh, New Zealand Post offered a absolutely great sort of training ground in terms of covering the foundations and the principles of telecommunications systems and the likes. Uh, um, so what I found is that I needed to uh, stay there a very long time, however, to progress in my career to something sort of uh, more more interesting. So, so this I, was the old school days where it was all about your tenure, and if you were around yeah. for a long time, you would you, yeah, you might you get slowly your promotion after yeah. five, ten years, and, <laughs> and kind of like you know, as a you know, eighteen, nineteen year old, uh, I was probably a little bit impatient and, and wanted to actually move things along. So I, I had the opportunity to uh, start up in what turned out to be a new venture. Um, so creating sort of you know competition sort of in the space basically of how computers are networked across New Zealand. Um, so I ended up in a network engineering sort of role there, you know, designing, installing the first networks, all those types of things. Uh, but that very quickly sort of moved on to we now need to differentiate and specialise and come up with different um, different product experiences or solve new problems for customers. Uh, so, so I got involved actually moving from being an engineering role into a technical product marketing type role. So designing you know, the, the feature sets and the bundling of how we'd do that. Started getting into the economics of how do we do do this on a on a better better basis. Uh, which once you start doing this, you need to start putting together presentations and the likes, and then you need to be able to communicate this. And at the time, um, I was a very shy sort of individual, wouldn't wouldn't go out and talk to anyone, absolutely hated the idea of having to speak in front of people. <laughs> so so what did you do? So so I, I, I ended up sort of, um, a couple of friends said, uh, hey, go along to Toastmasters. They teach you how to how to speak. And it's not, not about, um, you know, being born with natural born sort of speaking talents. Uh, you'll learn the principles of communication. So I went along to Toastmasters and eventually overcome that fear of uh, speaking in front of people. Um, so that was probably the transition sort of point from the engineering role sort of into the more of the marketing roles. Because uh, marketing at its essence is all about how do you communicate something of value uh, in a way that uh, people actually uh, want to uh, want to do that for themselves. So so that that's that's really kind of like the transition or the tipping point of moving into a, into marketing type roles. And clearly you you know you've enjoyed that uh, that communication that getting people you know across the line um, you know in your in your varying roles. So where where did you go from uh, from there because you you know you've been through quite a variety of of roles and 
you know, key companies and, and software, um, and and not just uh, you know not just NZ Post and and uh, and Telecom. So how how did that uh, how did that all evolve? Yeah. So so from there, you know, I was I was seeing that there was, you know, there, there wasn't a huge amount of competition sort of in the telco sector at the time, and I was thinking maybe this is the you know, the, the in, in, end of innovation in that part, it was com- starting to commoditize a bit too much. And I thought, where, where, are, where are things happening? Uh, so I looked at um, the software industry. And the software industry, sort of at the time, there weren't a lot of uh, New Zealand entities. So I, I mostly sort of went seeking uh, opportunities working for global sort of companies. Uh, so the first company I came across that I uh, interviewed with was uh, Symantec. Uh, so Symantec being a uh, one of the you know, foundation um, security sort of enterprise security companies um, around, uh, they had a, a reasonable amount of um, antivirus sort of software, remote control type software, those those types of things, and the prop- proposition was um, you know, protect your business from disruption. Um, so so yeah, so joining joining Symantec was the first sort of purely outbound sales role, you know, carrying a quota and having to achieve uh, those those numbers sort of on a, you know, quarter over quarter, month by month, year on year uh, type, type basis. And how did you, how did you find that, uh, that pressure having those, having those targets? Well, uh, probably it wasn't too bad. Um, I didn't, didn't have call reluctance or any, anything like that because uh, I, you know, I genuinely like talking to people and hearing people's stories and understanding you know, what, what's the problem that they have. So you know, at my essence, I, I like solving problems. Um, so the way you solve problems is, first of all, listening. So you know, listening skills are an absolute key to that. Um, so I did quite a bit of time back in my telecom sort of uh, Spark day or pre-Spark days <laughs> um, on, on help desk. And help desk is where customers ring up with problems that you have to solve and, and you had to listen very carefully. So, so a lot of those skills sort of come into play as well. Uh, but I also took it upon myself to, to uh, go and get some formal training in sales and marketing. So, yeah, uh, that, that was also key. So... And, and again, that, that really just sort of solidified the, uh, the active listening skills, the questioning skills around, you know, when to use open questions, when to use closed questions. How, how do you draw out uh, what, what is the underlying pain with the current experience of an organisation? Yeah, that seems, uh, seems really, really valuable. So how did, you, how did you go and, you know, learn that? What was the, what was the training that you, you were able to go through at the time? Oh, I think it's Brian Tracy um, who's pr- probably you know uh, pr- did it did a series of sort of uh, trainings and all with that, um, uh, and, and it was pr- primarily the you know, the Brian Tracy. They think they did a thing called the Phoenix Seminar, which was all, all around um, how, how do you how do you help a customer on the journey of. Uh, describing the problem um, and how do you get to a point where uh, where you can provide sufficient evidence that the customer is comfortable uh, that uh, you can solve the problem for them in a way that's going to be mutually beneficial. Right. Now, with that sort of approach to selling, that sort of mindset, sounds like you've got to have good products to, to sell. Yes. <laughs> so walk, walk us through how you've, <laughs> Yeah, you pick the companies that you would uh, you would work for, and how yeah. how, how that journey's l- looked for you. What are the sorts of things that that you look for? Yeah, so probably due to my engineering background, I needed to have confidence that uh, the product was soundly engineered. Um, and I'll probably take take it back to you know the semantic sort of uh, experience at the time. Um, you know, semantic had come from being a consumer-oriented sort of um, organisation, providing you know, antivirus for people's sort of laptop computers and uh, desktop computers at the time. Um, but they'd moved and pivoted basically into the enterprise space, where they were trying to now do this at scale, um, and and fun. Fundamentally, there was a like a, a database system um, underpinning a lot of their products, and the database system didn't scale. Oh dear! So when you're doing a doing a test, uh, doing an evaluation, 
Um, it would work well when you're doing the demonstration. It would work well in five or ten computers. But when you roll it out to thousands of computers in some of the large government departments in New Zealand, um, the under, underlying engineering problems actually start uh, becoming a problem. Um, so I lost confidence in the, in the organisation's ability to, um, to actually deliver on its promise. So making sure that you're supporting and backing a, a company that is able to deliver on the actual promise, it's got to be able to do what it says on the tin. As soon as something doesn't do that, I'm typically um, I'm on to the next company. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a good a good approach is to find a good company, but yeah, yeah you can't yeah, you can't to, always tell what you're gonna find uh yeah. um and you know you, behind the scenes, right? And you can only do so much due diligence and, and the likes, mm. uh, right? Mm. So so that that's that's probably, you know, um so so long as I have confidence that uh, what I'm representing is able to actually deliver on its promise, uh, that that's probably the key consideration for me. Uh, the second consideration really would be um, how much good is this able to do? Um, if you're protecting organisations from the likes of cyber threats, that's obviously a good thing. If you're protecting companies from you know, losing information, having information stolen, uh, that's a good thing. So I look at uh, what you know, is, is it doing something that is actually you know, a- adding to society rather than um, you know, just you know, making money. <laughs> Yeah, it makes it makes it a lot easier to to sell, doesn't it? Now, with the the software vendors that you've worked with, I think um, yeah, seven of them you mentioned uh, before. Now, in a lot of cases with 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 software, there as it sounds like it was with Semantic, uh, you've got a situation where the software isn't necessarily well-known or well-known in the particular space mm-hmm. that, that you're yeah. selling into. I mean, in that case with Symantec, probably no more for the you know consumer product. Then they mm-hmm. moved into the business and the, the enterprise space. Uh, I know with some of the other software companies that, that you've worked with, you've been introducing uh, these products into the market. Yeah. Um, so what are the things about doing that that you've you've learned that sort of when you look at, at how that plays out that you've had to be mindful of to to get results because there's there's something easy about selling a product that everybody knows about they know it's the best mm-hmm. and you know you can go in and and offer that but in a lot of cases uh, you're kind of starting from scratch right so how do you do that yeah well you know the internet wasn't around when when um, you know early, early 90s, very early 90s, mm. uh, representing Symantec. And Symantec wasn't a known name, even in the technology sector at the time. Uh, so it did take um, you know, a good sort of six to 12 months to actually build that up. Um, so key, key to that at that time, because you know, the, the conference sort of uh, seasons and all those types of things, you know, the, there weren't so many sort of frequent conferences in the technology sector back then. Uh, so it was very much around the hard slog of actually going out um, and talking to all of the, um, you know, the resellers of the time, the Computerlands, the Axons, the Southmarks, and and uh, Wang, and, and and all the others, and, and talking to them all um, about what was the value proposition and what what's the value story uh, that the that the brand brings. Um, so establishing that kind of like channel presence becomes a force multiplier for you in the market. Um, the next part was to actually help build out demand for those channel partners. So I, I got quite a number of uh, channel partners basically on, on board and signed up as, as resellers. Uh, then there was the enablement and education um, aspect of those and uh, making sure that they could do uh, the implementation of, of the solutions properly. Um, a then, lot of groundwork. Yeah, so there's there is quite a lot of groundwork there, uh, but then you've also uh, with with the reseller model, um, the traditional reseller model um, doesn't exist quite so much uh, in current current days. But um, you you had to create demand for them. You had to show this is how it's done and actually bring them off um, effectively deals on the plate. Once somebody sees success and all around that, success breeds success. So, so it was showing those one or two type transactions with each of them, then going and talking to the sales team about how, how did you actually close 
particular piece of business. And when salespeople can see uh, what's in it for them, you know, what's in it for me, uh, which is you know, all salespeople are you know, coin-operated and we're all salespeople, um, but uh, once people can see a pattern for success, um, that tends to multiply. Um, so that, that's really how, how we managed to get, uh, uh, get the brand and all out there. And then we, we did end up sort of um, starting to get into running um, you know, various sort of marketing events, uh, various like marketing breakfasts, and I was fortunate enough to, to get uh, Peter Tippett, who's like a real industry luminary, uh, across to New Zealand, and we did a series of uh, breakfast seminars and all around, uh, you know, protecting your organisation from malware and, and viruses at the, at the time, and and that 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 got quite a bit of sort of um, quite a bit, bit of momentum going, uh, and then at the time, you know, Semantic realised that um, you know some of these enterprise tools weren't weren't doing so well, and they effectively withdrew parts of their product line from the market and refocused back on the consumer side. Uh, so there was also the aspect of merchandising and, and all with the likes of you know your Noel Leemings, uh, your Harvey Normans, and. Uh, Dick Smith, as it, as it was back then, yeah. and and um, you know just making sure that uh, the promotions were were fit for purpose from the you know the business to consumer sort of part of the market, and, and there was starting to be a little bit of like mass market sort of advertising aspects to you know which uh, which you know, newspapers or magazines do we need to actually have content in? I was going and talking to the you know the editors of PC World and all around you know, reviews of those types of things. Um, it was working with other partners. Uh, I was involved um, at the time when Windows 95 uh, was launched and Bill Gates had come over to New Zealand and uh, we were at the, uh, the town hall doing, doing, um, doing the launch of Windows 95 um, as a, as a co-partner with Microsoft. So, so that was that was quite a quite a neat experience. Uh, so you got the, to hang out with Bill Gates. So yeah, the thing that I really you know, remember about Bill, you know, even even back then, he was a you know a global sort of superstar of of technology. But the thing that really struck me was you know, he, he was very down to earth, very approachable, and he was hugely curious. He wanted to know. And he had all these questions about, um, you know, how would how do you think antivirus should work with an operating system and all those types of things from a, um, but yeah, he's an incredibly fascinating man. Um, mm. But but that's that curiosity. Um, you know, even then he's probably you know well into his forties and all, but he's hugely curious about how do I solve the next problem, and that was quite inspiring. Now. You, you know, you went through a number of roles. Um, you moved back into a, a um, well, actually, you tell the story better than I will, um, but you ended up with Core Plus, which has, you know, been through a few names and, and changes and so on. Now, you know, today uh, is, is two degrees effectively. Um, it seems like you, you did, you know, quite a mix there in terms of, you know, technical as well as in on the, the sales and marketing side. I'm really fascinated about uh, about yeah. this and this sort of unique um, yeah. uh, scenario where you you have moved backwards and forwards a, a little bit. And I, you know, I, I guess it you know it leaves me thinking that because you've you've not just been on the you know on the selling side the the whole time you've seen things from uh, you know fr- I guess from the other side of the fence. And maybe we'll get the, into that with with your Westpac. Um, Role as, as well, um, yeah. As to as to what you uh, what you learnt there, but of course, you know, the sales and marketing was was part of it as well. So how did how did all that come about? Yeah, well, I joined Core Plus in the capacity of uh, marketing manager. Okay. So so we had a particular uh, product um, in mind, and it was uh, providing you know, business broadband uh, out to. Uh, business customers and the CBDs of uh, Auckland, Wellington and the likes, uh, taking advantage of fibre optic rollouts that were happening via various sort of uh, providers, um, primarily the utilities sort of companies like Vector, Tangent, uh, all, all of those at the time. Um, and, and it was, you know, the prospect was primarily a marginal gains sort of perspective. So at the time, um, 
I think it was Telecom uh, back then, was offering um, the early versions of um, broadband internet. Uh, you know, 10 times faster, 100 times faster than dial-up sort of uh, mm. in- internet mm. uh, at, the, at the time. And, you know, the proposition that we had uh, was focused on, um, you know, an- another 10 times faster again, uh, but, but at uh, only half the price. Um, so, so we were always looking for things like uh, the, the incremental gain aspect. So you had to be you know, 30% sort of better from a features and functions, um, speeds and feeds perspective, and you had to be 10 to 30% sort of more cost effective uh, because Call Plus at the time you know, didn't have huge brand reach and the likes. So we always had to have that differentiator, and and the differentiator had to be thirty you percent know, more features at potentially thirty percent less cost than the incumbent, and and that that's really what we what we look to to um, to identify to be able to uh, organically grow our market share from word of mouth and outbound sales. Um, that's what what we what we had to do. Uh, that role then morphed more into sort of as 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 that branding company got morphed into um, the other lines of business um, into more of the business to consumer, and uh, business to consumer, um, we were competing against um, telecom again at the time, and you know, they had a broadband product which was thirty five dollars a month for dial up internet um, at the time and. How do you compete with that? And uh, um, you know, Malcolm, the uh, managing director at the time, had figured out a bit of a, uh, a loophole in in the way that the agreements between telecom and the other uh, competitors sort of worked out, and figured out a way that we could actually provide the internet for free. This loophole was where you you know calls terminating onto. Um, yeah, originating termination sort of fees and the likes. Yep. So, so it meant so that, if a telecom um, customer was calling into yeah. effectively the number you own, telecom had to pay you X cents a, X cents a minute. It's the one. And, yeah, you, and you just yeah. effectively turned it around so that telecom customers were actually calling a non-telecom um, phone number. Um, which then meant basically that it was revenues being generated, you know, four cents per minute. I think it might have been at the time, and we just did a deal with that party to to share that revenue and put an ISP over there. Mm-hmm. Um, that then creates um, a very disruptive uh, thing in the market because you're now saying, "Hey, the internet is free when thirty-five dollars is what the incumbent's charging." Yeah, yeah. Now that leads to yeah. some quite interesting sort of um, behaviours, shall we say? Yes, um, yes, I can imagine. So, so f- effectively, we we poked the bear a little bit, um, and and uh, telecom reacted in in ways basically to to try and stop us from doing this, uh, but. Uh, we were able to leverage that to actually get free uh, press coverage in the mainstream media. So you know you, you're now on the front page of the Herald. Uh, you're being interviewed by by television and and the, and the likes. So so that that uh, free publicity helps to actually multiply the the reach of how do you get the message out that I for free is available anywhere in New Zealand and uh, you can. Um, you can now get the internet for free rather than thirty-five dollars a month. Uh, so, so that that was a very you know that that sort of guerrilla marketing uh, aspect uh, was really a, a quite a quite a key uh, part to to the you know, the success really of that. Um, yeah, and then uh, very quickly you've got hundreds of thousands of New Zealand uh, consumers um, that have signed up for free, uh, which which is really good. Yeah, look, some you know something we don't generally have available today, and it must have it must have gone a long way to um, you know helping the growth of the internet here in New Zealand and how many you know, individuals and and families yeah um, you know decided to get on board and and start connecting up. Yeah, what sort of what timing was that? What year was that? I do remember it. But, uh, re- really, early two thousands, yeah, so around yeah. around the year two thousand two thousand one, mm, um, mm. around around that time frame. But you know. 
all good things come to an end. Uh, <laughs> so, so the you know the commercial arrangement that underpinned that um, obviously was no longer working for telecom. So they <laughs> wanted to renegotiate that sort of fairly fairly smartly. So then we were left in a position uh, where we had to monetize what we were giving away for free in a fairly short space of time. Um, and the only way to really do that was to, uh, again, sort of invoke, uh, being able to work with mass media uh, to actually get some uh, more reach and all out there to try and compel uh, people to come, ac come across from the free product, which we couldn't sort of... Uh, uh, continue to do for too long because there was real costs involved in running a free network. Um, so we had to convince them to come across. So, so then it was about, about how, how do we create a product that was going to be profitable, uh, but we weren't going to actually lose all of those customers back to $35 a, a month from, from the incumbent again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, fascinating. And so, what what were the things that uh, that really you sort of, I guess, brought brought into to Core Plus uh, at that time? Um, because uh, behind Core Plus was uh, Annette Presley and, and Malcolm Dick. We've had uh, Annette on the New Zealand Business Podcast sharing mm -hmm. some of some of her story. Um, she ended up, you know, all over TV screen, sort of, you know, uh, uh, in a in a similar style, I guess, as at the time, uh, you know, Michael Hill was with Michael Hill Jeweler, uh, yeah. not not quite the same sort of content, but you know, she was really uh, she was really out there. Um, how did that that yeah. come about, for instance? Yeah, so my role at that time was was helping with primarily, you know, the, the financial and the economic uh, underpinnings of. Um, of moving from free to paid and all those types of things. Okay. So, uh, but I, I certainly wasn't a you know, business to consumer uh, expert in any any way, shape, or form. So um, yeah, it's where Mark joined the organisation, and, and Mark had done a lot of um, you know, campaigns basically in the in the media and all. Uh, I think with Telecom at the time. Mark uh, Callender. Mark Callender. Okay. This is, yeah. yeah. So Mark Mark had joined, and he had a really great vision for uh, how how what what message do we need to actually get out, um, and you know, his his uh, recommendation at the time was to you know um, be be the actual. Uh, come across as as the hey this this is this is my company like like the Michael Hill jeweler um, so yeah after a little bit of persuasion sort of uh, Annette who you know is definitely not a shrinking violet uh, was persuaded to actually sort of you know fa face basically the cameras and uh, get the message and all that out there and um, you know, we had quite a you know, far ranging. Uh, you know, newspaper and television coverage um, and uh, investing in that uh, mass sort of media advertising. Uh, so we had to actually invest sort of significant amounts of money. And uh, yeah, both Malcolm and Annette were very nervous about uh, that at the time. But, um, you know, in the fullness of history, it actually all paid off. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, it done very well and, and certainly done a few podcasts with uh, with Mark Callender, and of course now he's the, the chief executive at at, at, at two degrees there. Um, so, move, moving on from there, what uh, you know, what other what other things did you you get, get into? Um, and you did a bit of technical work there as as well. Was that right at uh, at Core Plus? Yeah. So yeah, it was around. Um, Technical sort of product marketing and then moving into it like a CTO uh, role, um, primarily in the uh, bringing in uh, multi services uh, in the telecommunications. So you're bringing together a billing, unified communications, broadband internet, managed file services, and all those types of things. So it's a, very much a business to business. Uh, so it came down to again is uh, what is the proposition? And we quickly worked out that uh, we, our, our person we were selling to was the chief financial officer. So the chief financial officer again, sort of, it came back to that. What what is what is the 30% sort of uh, you know net advantage that you've got compared to the incumbent? 
uh, what what is the price point? So it became a cost of ownership sort of perspective. So we're you know we're thirty percent faster, we have thirty percent more features, and we're thirty percent less less costly. So we went after uh, that type of a market. Um, I think we called it Converge or something at the time. Um, and we were getting some really, really great sort of uh, uptake in the actual CBD buildings. But it was uh, very much a uh, outbound uh, sales team. So we had uh, uh, feet on the street going out and uh, going out and sort of uh, selling to the uh, CFOs basically in the in the buildings all around the Auckland sort of uh, CBD isthmus. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm sure having such compelling offerings, if you can get in front of people, which has probably become harder, yeah. uh, especially during COVID, COVID times. To uh, yeah. uh, certainly the the in person face to face has become yeah. uh, has become a, a challenge. I can see with such enticing offerings that yeah. uh, that would have been kind of fun to get out there and uh, and and sell because sort of win win. All round and probably pretty easy for everyone to to see it. Yeah. Uh, if you know if they were comfortable with with going with a with a smaller player than yeah. Uh, what were the the big guns at the time? And and the secret to that actually was responsiveness. So when you've got your rep in front of uh, a, a a prospect talking about um, you know all, all of these wonderful things, you've only got a certain amount of time uh, to to actually uh, get someone to agree with you that uh, the, these are things that they want. Um, so we had to make sure that the economic aspect of that was able to be turned around very, very quickly. Uh, so so we, we got the process sort of down uh, to the perspective where, you know, with a few key pieces of information provided by the CFO, uh, we could finalise a proposal with costs and all uh, for them. Sometimes actually during a half hour or hour meeting with the propose, uh, with the customer. So um, as a CFO, when someone comes in and talks about you know, complex things and all like that, they're thinking it might be a week or two before you get the proposal. But uh, literally, you know, within when they're talking to them or within an hour afterwards, they would actually get the full proposal with all of the projected cost savings and all those types of things validated in the email uh, within the hour, That's uh, which was a pretty powerful sort of uh, you know selling tool at the time. So yeah. how, how how responsive we could be uh, to that, and and we had to make sure that we very carefully articulated all of the value propositions, and also address a number of the objections that they might you know the common objections, so that it became a very compelling piece of evidence that a CFO was this is just a no brainer. I'm going to sign here. Brilliant. So yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great! Now walk us through some of the other some of the other uh, you know roles you've been through them, and kind of I guess how things changed. What has been the you know your your more recent uh, learnings as 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 the the market has evolved, yeah. whether you know that's uh, yeah. as as things have got you know more and more online, or you know even even the um, the changes and disruptions of COVID. Yeah, so, so you know. After the role at Call Plus, I ended up doing a, a very long tenure with Hewlett Packard. You know, a very long tenured company in New Zealand. It's been here since the 1960s. Um, yeah, it's since about 1967, I think uh, Hewlett Packard was formed in New Zealand, and and they had uh, a significant, you know, five six billion dollar software business. So you know, globally they were uh, relatively big. Uh, but enterprise software, like software for for large businesses, is is really where they focused, and that's that's where I mostly sort of worked. Um, primarily doing uh, what's called business value selling, so how, you know, listening to customers around the problems they want to solve, proving that you can solve those, and and demonstrating uh, the value, quantifying the value and all for them, and you know, business value sort of. Um, Reports, presentations, uh, those types of things, doing proof of concepts, uh, proof of value, uh, those, those types of activities. Um, but eventually, enterprise software um, started uh, heading towards the end of end of an era, 
um, as these hyperscale cloud providers were, were becoming more prevalent and people no longer wanted to do on-premise installations of software, they just wanted to consume it from the cloud. Um, so software as a service started making uh, quite, quite a, an impact. So, so as people were weaning off enterprise software, they were wanting to move to SaaS software and Hewlett-Packard wasn't investing proactively enough to make that transition of its products from a on-premise to a consumed as cloud model. Uh, so I, I started looking for who is the next, um, next big, uh, big thing basically in, in, in the SaaS. So I joined uh, Sumo Logic because uh, their value proposition was all around um, identifying value and intelligence from all of the data uh, that all of these inter interrelated systems uh, created. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was again, you know, as soon as uh, the product's not doing what it says on the tin anymore, yep. or it's too hard to make it do what it says on the tin, is probably more the case. Um, so I had, had to find a company that could do what it said on the tin and could do it easily mm. in a way customers wanted to do that. So SaaS um, is, a, is a different, you know, software as a service, uh, is a different, very different proposition. Um, and where the internet has sort of come along as well, it completely changes and who you partner with in the market also changes um, mm. the, the SaaS organisations. So there's you know, organisations like the Instillery and Consigna recently acquired by CyberCX. Uh, those types of organisations are now the, you know, they're the, they're the parties, the go-to parties of businesses that want to take advantage of the disruption uh, that the that, you know, cloud native sort of uh, technologies bring. Uh, so you're now working with the cloud, you know, the, the marketplaces of the likes of Amazon, of Microsoft's Azure, of Google, um, and partnering with those cloud companies together with the integrators like your Consignas and your CyberCX, um, your Datacoms, those types of companies. Um, but what we now find is that customers, because of how much information is available on the internet, will do their own research, uh, very much so, and they'll be looking at what are the problems that we want to solve, and they will very much do all of the research around the top two or three that they can see, and they won't even come and talk to you as a vendor until they've, they've already got basically a short list. So once uh, they come in and to talk to you, uh, you've got to be incredibly responsive in the current mode. Um, so if it takes you a week to come back and answer some of the questions, that is a very bad sort of outcome. Uh, you've pretty much, um, you've either got to answer the questions basically as they're given to you or come back within a, you know, a couple of hours, if not uh, definitely within the day. Uh, so that, that, that's a big, big challenge. It's a real big change of, of pace and, and how you have to operate when you're, when you're selling now. Yeah, so, so you know, mass marketing, um, you still have to do that. And that's different again today because you're doing that through social selling uh, with the likes of LinkedIn. Um, you're you know, using, using the LinkedIn network sort of a lot, a lot more uh, to, to get your messaging all out, sort of you know, advertising, um, blog pieces. So there's this whole multi-channel of how do you build up your brand equity, mm. um, which is very different to you know, what it was sort of uh, 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, 10 years ago, uh, the customers didn't know what your services and all were. It was the salesperson had to actually get out and inform uh, the prospect that, hey, you've got a problem and it looks like this and this is how you solve it. Um, and the customer couldn't do a whole lot of research and all at the time. Uh, they were quite reliant on the vendors to tell them. That has very much swapped around. Uh, so today, um, your customers, in particular, you know, their architects, their CTOs and those, are very well versed in what's out there to solve the problems they want to solve. Yes. Um, so that that's that's uh, changed significantly. Yeah. Um, now you you went from that role to being the chief information security officer at Westpac Bank. 
Yes. Um, this is not the, the normal track uh, for somebody in the world of sales and marketing. Walk us through yeah. that, that one. Yeah, so when, when you've done 20, 25 years, basically, of frontline sort of uh, selling type roles um, and, and a pandemic comes along, um, you know, the, the prospect of actually doing sort of uh, selling basically over exclusively Zoom uh, sort of uh, wasn't too appealing to me. Mm. Um, so I leveraged pretty much the um, the heritage and the experience that I've had um, around uh, the governance of risk and um, helping organisations to secure the delivery of their value proposition to their customers. Um, so I had a lot of experience in the things that are fundamental to cyber security. Um, in the role when I was uh, with Core Plus, um, I did also have um, cyber security was one of the things I was responsible for. So I wasn't wasn't uh, new to that. Um, I'd done some previous formal training in that sort of space. Uh, so it was very easy for me to um, get my credentials sort of up to spec for for running a cyber program. Um, so the appeal really there was, and and the big big challenge that cybersecurity has is is a selling challenge. Um, you've got to be able to talk to your various stakeholder groups, uh, you know, the board. Um, the various internal sort of risk and audit committees that, that you're working to, um, you always had to sell what do we need to do to actually solve the risk problem. So even as a CSO, it was effectively still a selling role. Wow, yeah, so yeah. It, make, it makes sense. So the first thing you had to have to do is actually secure appropriate budgets to address basically the, the gap in risk. Mm. Uh, so you know, working with the, you know, the chief executive, the CIO, working with the Australian uh, board and governance and all around, uh, how, how do we do that? So that was a, you know, a great problem to be able to solve. Um, so you, know, you, you need the budgets established, and then you need a need to be able to do organisational design uh, to get the right um, separation of work, so that uh, people were, were doing you know more specialist roles, and you didn't have gaps and overlaps. You didn't have people burning out and all those types of things. So that uh, duty of care aspect sort of comes into it. So designing an organisational structure and how you work with partners. Uh, to be able to execute on that, um, yeah, so. that, that sounds re actually really, really exciting. Um, and I, you know, I think there are probably some, you know, some folks listening that are that are thinking, oh, you know, what uh, what other opportunities might I have, uh, you know, ca career wise for I guess what uh, you know what becomes that sort of yeah. you know, um, you know leveraging leadership skills and 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 you know sales skills to. Uh, to bring about internal yeah. change, so yeah, it's fascinating. So the internal change part was really what really you know excited me mm. um, was because because that's a sales job as well because you've got to convince people that changing and structuring yourself in this way is going to end up with better experiences for the people that are internally being service providers for you know different parts basically of the cyber uh, value chain yeah, yeah. Um, so you had to get people to come along on the journey uh, with with you and, th and that was a really exciting time but also uh, reinvigorating uh, the team to, to give them uh, direction and focus uh, was was important, and that's mm. that's the sales skill as well. Mm. You know, mm. uh, selling selling a vision, um, and then being able to attract people to come and join the organisation. Uh, you had to sell that. Uh, you know, Westpac was a great place to actually come and actually, uh, you know, perfect your craft. Um, so we were able to actually almost double the size of the staffing and all in the in the in the cyber sort of space, which was which was really great. And and I was able to, um, you know, take that sort of uh, to a, to a logical conclusion and then hand it over to a uh, to a to a uh, person that was very very capable of actually sort of taking it on from there. Wow, that's so great, great excellent. Experience. And then you know, most most recently, uh, you've been with a, a Silicon Valley uh, cybersecurity firm, a, a startup called Sneak S N Y K. For those who are <laughs> curious, it's not Sneak as in sneaker, yep. um, but uh, maybe there's some correlations there too. So, how has that worked out 
uh, for you. Mm. And, um, you know, how have you you've taken, I guess, all, all the things that you've done and learnt over the years into this role? What would be the, the sort of key key learnings that you've brought into the to the role because yeah you seem to uh, from the, the the chats I've had with you you know really be out talking to a, a large range of of uh, you know organizations some very very large organizations but you seem to have been able to I guess uh, not find it too hard to get to get through the door into these conversations so how is that uh, how's that come about um, I, I think probably the the key thing with that is just being very passionate about uh, being able to actually solve a problem. And uh, the, the problem that I identified um, through through my tenure sort of um, over the last few years was um, the software that people are building um, is, is predominantly uh, pulled from the internet, so it's untrusted software and people are just using these building blocks, the you know, Lego, to put things together um, without thinking through the actual security consequences. So um, the problem with that is all of the tooling that was around to do that, uh, to, to actually try and identify and remediate those problems, uh, weren't very helpful. They didn't end up helping uh, the developers who are now responsible for building that software solve the problem. Uh, so it was pretty much an unsolved problem that was creating risk for you know, software startups through to government departments through to large enterprises. Because everyone relies on software, right? And there's, yeah. there's, you know, as soon as you get to any scale, there's a level of, of you know, yep. custom, uh, you know, custom software. And uh, yep. as you, as you say, there are building blocks that uh, that come from uh, you know various uh, yeah. sources on the, on the internet. So there's yep. some risk so, points. So it all came comes down to what is the user experience, and the user experience for the party that is responsible for solving the problem. Uh, so we identified, or I identified, that uh, the developers were responsible for solving the problem because the security organisation uh, didn't have uh, enough people. So for every uh, one security person, there's about 100 developers actually creating the problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you actually had to help the developers solve the problem. So it was all around what is the user experience uh, that you need to change yep. uh, for those developers. You need to make it, and it comes back again, you had to make it you know, at least 30% more efficient or more, and you had, had to make sure that there was an economic advantage uh, for the organisation in solving that problem to avoid the risk. So it always comes down to those mechanics of value. Yeah. Um, what, what, how can you actually change the, you know, the productivity of a developer uh, to be able to develop fast but at the same time stay, stay secure? And, and that, that was really, really the key. Uh, but because I'd had quite a lot of experience for that in working with development teams sort of over the past couple of years, I knew that the developers were very, very frustrated because they weren't able to actually move the dial. Um, so the language and how I would engage with the people responsible for the company uh, was generally fairly well received. Um, the problem I had uh, with, with Sneak was uh, it was not a household name. Mm. Uh, nobody knew about it. And so you have to, at the same time as doing your outbound, you know, working your network, uh, you had to also go about building out some brand recognition again through um, partnering with uh, well-known sort of our brands uh, in New Zealand, and you know for the first part of this part of this year we didn't have any marketing events because of you know pandemic and lockdowns, uh, but really over the last sort of uh, six weeks we've done about six different conferences, so that's really helped to accelerate basically the the traction we're now getting. Uh, with organisations and, and entities, so that's great. Yeah, so you've got to do the outbound. You've got to do the uh, the marketing events, the brand recognition, yeah. um, just so people know that you're actually here. You're invested in the country with boots on the on the ground. Yes, because uh, yeah. people like dealing with people sort of uh, in in the New Zealand market. 
Um, and, and that's also you know, a differentiator to some of, some of the competitors. You know, they're still long line selling from, from the US or selling from Australia. Um, so having that advantage of we are here uh, is, is also uh, pretty pretty good to be able to actually you know, get that, um, make that part of basically the proposition, you know, uh, sell to people that are actually here. Excellent. Well, thank you, Stephen. There's been some incredible insights you shared today. Now, um, a tradition, and I think it's a good one, uh, that mm. Ben Rose established as a last question that we wrap up the, each episode of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider with. And, and it's, it's, it's this, really. It's, um, you know, if you had to give our listeners one piece of advice uh, now that they could take away and action immediately or action tomorrow, uh, what, would, what would that advice be? Ooh. Hard question, but uh, responsiveness. So if you're interacting with an organisation, you need to be able to literally within the hour uh, get back to them with what are the next steps. Um, So, you know, the attention span of of interest uh, working with an organisation, you know, whilst it used to be in the months, it's now in in the hours. So your major competitive advantage is how quickly can you get to the point where you've provided sufficient evidence that you can actually deliver what it says on the can. Excellent. Um, that's it. That's good. I think that's it's really sound. Well, thank you very much, Stephen Phillips. Uh, great to have you here on the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. Great. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. We will be back again with our next episode in a fortnight's time. And we have some really interesting guests coming up in addition to this great episode and the great episodes that we already have available, if you haven't heard them, featuring Ben Rose and a really great lineup of guests there. So we'll look forward to catching you again on the next episode. And a big thank you to Gorilla Technology as our show partner. It happens to be the firm that, that I work for and own. So if you need any help on the uh, advice or uh, assistance from uh, technology services or cybersecurity perspective for a small to medium organisation, uh, then feel free to get in touch. All right, haerera. Thanks for listening in to this episode of the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. If you enjoyed it, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite app for fortnightly episodes. For other great New Zealand podcasts such as New Zealand Everyday Investor, NZ Business Podcast, This Climate Business and more, head across to podcasts.nz. Out of its technology expertise you're after, for a small to medium organisation, then make your way to gorillatechnology.com. And special thanks to our friends at 40 Thieves Nut Butters. Listeners to the show can get a 20% discount when purchasing online. Just go to 40thieves.co.nz and use the promo code INSIDER20. See you next time.